did five, six, seven times on the business model to find something that was like tractionable because typically these type of ideas have either been financed by one of two sources, either government entities, you know, through like Japan subsidizing or China subsidizing, right? or what I'd call the benevolent benefactor, right? Like the Jeff Bezos or the Mark Zuckerbergs or the Bill Gates of the world. And we didn't have really either. And so we had to kind of go this other route of like creating a real business and making sure that Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Virgin Hyperloop CEO and co-founder Josh Geigel. So if you missed part one, please go back and listen to his stories about uh, his time at SpaceX and and some of the accomplishments that the Virgin Hyperloop world has accomplished so far. I'd actually be interested in your answer there. When you think about the most important milestones to you so far, what what are those over these last seven years or so? This is a good one. So... I think there's some very sentimental moments, but there's also some really great technological milestones. So the the first one was when we actually just moved into the office, right? You you graduate from the garage. It's like moving out of your parents' house and getting your own place. It's like, wow, this is real. The responsibility that comes with investment of people's hard-earned dollars, trusting you to, to do that. That was something that was pretty monumental that we were able to, to get that and take this idea to the next level. The next one was... When we finished the initial tube that we built in Vegas, so this was like May of 2017, and we had just been working like round the clock for multiple months. And I was flying out to Vegas every week, spending a bunch of days, weeks on end, and the team was going in and out, spending you know two 12-hour shifts per day, six days a week to get this done. And this moment happened very late on I think it was May 11th or May 12th of 2017. And we were sitting there doing the first test. The most of the team was there. We had bottles of champagne. It was like midnight. And we we had done it. We, this group of kind of ragtag guys and girls had put together a brand new form of transportation. And we had done it in two and a half years from a garage to that point. It was like it was overwhelming just seeing the team and the ability of a team to, to build something so quickly. And the second one was, or the one after that was probably when we re-architected the realize, you know, I was in Dubai and spending some time in Dubai after that test and coming back and I got on a bike ride in the Santa Monica mountains. And I realized like, as I came around to bend, one of the foundational problems of our system is, or was that once you build the infrastructure, it's locked in for like eternity. When you see a road and I came around this bend and there was a model or 1933 Ford Roadster followed by a model uh, S and those cars are like insanely different in technology and time frame and, and era and yet they drive on the same road and that's because the road is very dumb and the car is very smart and so it's like well let's put everything on the vehicle and everybody in the company thought that, that was crazy tell you that i can tell you some of the things i was called during that time but we eventually did the math and the math always works out math will tell you and it was like yeah this way will get us to, to be where we want to go and so that was kind of a monumental shift and then the what one a, that was probably the, what an interesting yeah, insight 
that is a it's interesting how you know sorry to interrupt i get so excited because you know i have i have these people who build multi-billion dollar businesses or, or things that i have a lot of respect for you know and i'm shocked at how often simple answers show up you know, yeah. I can't remember who, who this quote is from. I, I, I don't know if it was like the space program or somebody wrote on the wall somewhere like, this problem once solved will be simple. Have you heard that quote? <laughs> I have heard that quote before, yeah. Do you know who it was? I don't know who, who yeah, did it, either. but I've heard the quote before. It's, it's interesting that um, the other thing too is like the nature of innovation and the, the associations. You know, like you read books like from the IDEO guys who invented the mouse for Steve Jobs or all the, you know, different Apple products. Or my favorite guy is Steve, Steven Johnson. He's got that book, Where Good Ideas Come From. Mm-hmm. And like, if you watch for it, like a bunch of these books from like the people that I think are the most qualified to talk about innovation, they consistently cite stories of people who are working so hard over here on this thing. And then being out, being out and bouncing into other ideas, they accidentally bump into the other half of their problem. Hundred percent. Anyways, it sounds like you had it, something to say about that. Yeah, it's you know I love watching the way people solve problems. Like just as, as trivial examples, it sounds like watch somebody open and manipulate a Microsoft Excel document. Watch how they solve the same type of problem that you have a very prescriptive way to do. Watch how they go through this. And so watching other people solve problems or, or doing other pursuits or the one that gets me most excited is Nate, the way that nature solves problems. Right. And nature is it's had billions of years and infinite permutations to be able to experiment and learn things. And how do they solve problems? Well, it's it's simple, it's elegant, or you're staring at something, and like you said, your your brain has enough bandwidth now to like process all the other stuff in the background, but the openness to be aware that, oh, the way that this biomedical company is solving this problem is exactly the same challenge that I'm doing in this completely other field. And yet I could learn something from that. And so that experience, that exposure, the curiosity that comes with that is, is 100% there. And I'll say like, I've, I've personally done some of the best thinking I've ever done on the bike or when my heart rate gets about above about 150 is that like, you're too delirious to like talk yourselves out of dumb ideas, but at the same time, being able to talk yourself into questionable ones ultimately leads you down this new path to try something brand new. Yeah. So I've always found that, fascinating or whether it's you know music i'm a big musician and just the the actual the same way that engineers solve problems or the same way that improvisational musicians work with each other they have tool sets and engineering it's physics and math for musicians it's scales and modes and chords and then it's about playing with different types of people and learning like okay like these three different musicians get create this music but these three engineers create this piece of technology it's it's so analogous it's beautiful so I'm full of book recommendations. Okay. I I just started – I'm a real audiobook nerd. I just started one this morning that it sounds like you could have been reading today as well, okay, because you guys line up so much. It's it's Questlove from The Roots, you know, on Jimmy Fallon. Yeah, right? yeah. His book called Creative Quest is excellent. And especially you bringing up music, I wonder if you would enjoy it. So Yeah, I'll have to take a look there. I haven't heard that one yet. So – I have a few, I have like so many questions. We might have to like have you back on the show. Okay. So first one, thinking about fundraising, I've raised, you know, I've raised a bunch of money in my life, probably not as much as you. How much have you guys raised total for, for Hyperloop? Are you sharing that? Uh, a little over 400 million bucks. Okay. When you think about fundraising at that scale, what are some of the, 
what are some of the skills or what are some of the tips that you would share with people that maybe aren't everywhere in the business books already? I think when you're selling a product or you're talking about a technology that is extremely complex, right? You have to make, it's, it's an art to balance. You want to make it sound hard so that not everybody can do it. And on the flip side, you want to make sure, like I said earlier, like they come away understanding the challenges and how you intend to solve them. Finding that balance, finding the things and finding the real kind of secret sauce and explaining that to them. But the part that I've really come, come to understand is, you know, there's this old adage that, you know, investors invest in C products and A teams. And I don't think I really bought that at the beginning. <laughs> but the more you start to think about it is that we don't have the answers to every single little thing that's going to go wrong or that we have to develop right now. And really that, that view of when I was at the very beginning of saying like, we had to have all the answers is people were as much looking across the table at like, do they trust you to solve the issues that they know will come up with building something for the first time? And so in a way, I think we spent too much time talking about the it and the, the what as opposed to like, why us? And that has become a little bit more of a, of a profound difference is that there's always a bit of the balancing of the what and the it. But now it's about why should you think, why do you think this team is capable of doing that, right? So we've done all these things, you know, we've from new technology, building it, showing it works, having that validated to actually putting a passenger in it, to me and sitting inside of a Hyperloop for the first time and, and, and conveying that sense of like, if it's safe enough for me, it's safe enough for anybody. And in, in talking about what the team's done, why you should believe in this team. And I think I took it for granted because I've been privileged and blessed in a way that I've worked with incredible teams throughout my entire career. And you almost take it for granted. You almost take that if this group was tasked with saving, saving the world from a meteor that was going to hit next week, that they'd be able to do it. When in reality that like, that's not every team. And you really have to sell that this is something that, that is, that is there and, and getting people to come out and see, to feel, to touch that visceral feeling of seeing what you've been able to create. That has been absolutely even further. And, and then letting those people talk to the team members and seeing their excitement and passion. It's, I didn't realize that at the beginning, but now it's one of the most valuable things that we can do. Interesting. My guess is that that translates to, you know, when you're actually talking to countries or different people that want to put these in, how, how does that, how does that translate when you're doing that kind of a sale? It's definitely different. <laughs> I will say the same, the same thing that gets, investors excited, which is like that entrepreneurial, don't follow rules, you know, break the mold. <laughs> it's not what a safety regulator wants to hear. They want to hear that you followed every single rule that you've documented. And, and so that has been a, has been a real challenge. And so I've had to take a different tact in that approach, which is that like Josh, the CEO, the founder of the company is, he's aggressive. He likes to drive. He likes to push. He likes to fail quickly. So he has to take a little bit of a back seat when we go and talk with the regulator, that it's actually our safety team that's up there talking about the things that we're putting into place and that we're doing this in the way that they would expect in the way that would make sure that like if my mom or my sister or my son got on this, that it would be safe for them because Josh is more of a risk taker than most people. And that can't be when we're building a, you know, a new transit system. And 
and it, it's kind of that realization that you know you you're you don't need to be in every situation that you need to put the people who know that detail and you need to empower them that really has become a selling point is that people see the stuff happening fast and they see you know that I've balanced that out with you know team people on the team who are capable of doing the things to ensure that it's safe and, and methodical and putting them I'll say forefront in those type of conversations um by the way how many how many folks like are do you are you sharing how many locations or how many countries or how many different groups are interested in this? So we not overly specifically, but okay. generically speaking, we've got a number of different conversations that we're talking to in India, the Middle East, Europe, and and the U.S. So something on the order of at least you know a dozen or so types of different projects. Some cargo movers, pilot projects, sooner. Some going into large scale national networks, connecting you know hundreds of millions of people per year. All the different timelines. Some sooner rather than later because of the length and, and the scale of what the build out will be. But largely speaking. The interest is really high, and I'll say the the desire. If I had a product today, I would be able to sell more of it than I knew what to do with. And so, being able to 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 develop the product as quickly as we can, while also being safe, methodical, getting that approval that we need, that's the that's the the art right now. And I'll say, twenty years from now, when people look back on Hyperloop, they're going to be as impressed with the technology we're able to develop it. As, as they are with the speed at which we're able to get it into the market for something as complex and as safety critical as, as a public transportation system. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about watching the video of you, like, first ride in the Hyperloop, which great video. Everybody should be online watching that. How, how fast did you guys go? Short one. We only got up to about 108 miles an hour. So, okay. Uh, um, and then what do you, what are you feeling like kind of the upper range of speeds could be? So we'll say most practical speeds are between about five and 600 miles an hour. Any faster and you start to have really long on-ramps and you start to have like a difficult time, I'll say getting the straightness that you might need in, in a particular route to make sure people aren't bouncing around or having uncomfortable G-loads. But at its, at its overall, so you've got that speed, you've got you know 25 to 30 passengers per pot, so you're never waiting more than a minute or two and so the one thing I always like to say, the, the dirty little secret of high-speed rail is they say they go 300 kilometers an hour or so, which is about a little over 200 miles an hour, or almost 200 miles an hour. And they, ha- they say that, but like they're always stopping, right? And it's like, yeah, my, you know, I, I don't own one, but if I had a Ferrari, like, yeah, I'm sure it could go 200 miles an hour, but not when I have to drive in the city. Right. So, so what we're being able to do by having these individual pods and have this off ramp, like the smart vehicle dumb road or smart pod dumb tube technology is basically you just pull off and those ones on the trunk line can keep going directly to their destination without having to stop at each place along the way. So much better experience for people. And, and excuse my ignorance here, but are you doing parallel lines beside each other or is it one way this time, the other? It'll be a tube going each direction. But yeah, otherwise it just capacity is too low. Okay, that's what I was thinking. You know, getting this far, when there's so many folks that they think about inventing a new category, they think about inventing a new product, they have they have big dreams, and and statistically you're a huge anomaly to, to have gotten this far. What do you think that you've done differently that not everybody else has done? We had a couple of things. So we had a couple of things going in our favor. So one was 
you know, Elon had put out this white paper that talked about the Hyperloop technology and say tap the latent desire for something new. So that I think is a little bit different than others. Two, we had some really big believers and investors early on. And that allowed us to say like, hey, we're going to go do something at full scale, a big scale to show that this could work, uh, which requires more capital than I think a lot of other people had. But they really believe that you need to be able to see this. It's not something that's you know the size of a hamster wheel or something to that effect. I also think we had had a number of people who had done something, I'll say, large scale before. So, you know, I'd worked at SpaceX. We had a couple of people who've, a number of people for the first couple of years who had built something, had had success, who knew that like you needed to kind of dream dream big and, and fail big in a way. And that doing something smaller wasn't going to get you to where we ultimately needed to be. And, and since then, we have a fairly young workforce here. We've been trying to drive that culturally into the team that, you know, this isn't the way that, you know, a Boeing or a Lockheed Martin does technology development. This is about, you know, having a lot of empowerment, a lot of work, and then giving a lot of responsibility to the engineer. And that's both good and bad. And, you know, I would describe as, as when I got to SpaceX, I had way too much responsibility, right, as a 24-year-old coming out of grad school. And here we give the same type of responsibility. And so you either kind of sink or swim, and it, it makes you better. And it's, and it's hard, but but I'll say more often than not, when you're confronted with kind of unlimited possibilities and unlimited constraints in terms of, like, I need you to do something that might not be possible, people more often than not surprise you. And that, like, the constraints that we put on people, the, the limitations that we put on people, because we've accidentally done it a couple of times, it actually... It, it, it narrows the focus, right? And people have giant aspirations and giant dreams. You just have to let them do it. And, and I think we've done that really well from time to time. I think we've had episodes or periods where we've done it badly and we've watched kind of the organization react, you know, in a way that's like, hey, I don't, I don't like this constraint, which is like not enough funding to build something big or not enough time to build something big. And We've been pretty flexible with that, but we've also been really fortunate to have a set of investors that believes 100% in the product that we're building and how difficult it, it, it is. And I think without that, it would have been really hard to do this. Yeah. How big was, how many staff at SpaceX when you joined? About 450 to 500, somewhere yeah. in that range. Did you have interactions with Elon at the time? What's one of your takeaways from, from being there with him? So he actually, that was when he was, I don't know if he still is or not, but he was interviewing all of the candidates, right? So my last interview was, was with him and, you know, it's kind of a fascinating interview. But the one thing I really took away was he knew this was 10 years before you ever saw a rocket land itself, that the rockets are going to land itself. And I came in, my responsibility was building the next generation of engines that could be used multiple times. And I remember him telling me, I want to be able to use these rockets for 100 flights. And as a guy who's only ever, at that time, had only ever seen rockets go up, I'm like, well, that seems not important. And But when you heard from him, you heard that like, hey, if we can make it reusable, you started to see this, this longer term vision of what could be done. I thought it was like really it was really interesting to just a different mindset and it really encouraged this way of thinking that I think is 
it has affected me ever since. And so I'm really trying to impart the scale of the challenge ahead of us for my team. So I'll give, I'll give, the, I'll give the analogy I use internally. So if I was going to ask you to make a peanut butter and jelly for your kid, you would probably go downstairs and you'd go into the pantry, get the bread out, peanut butter, jelly, and, and make that up. But if I was going to ask you to make 10,000 peanut butter and jellies every single day for 10 years, you're not going into the pantry anymore, right? And that scale, and so for us, it's not moving one vehicle down a track. It's moving a fleet of vehicles in many projects around the world. We're talking about 10 billion passenger miles or 10 billion passenger kilometers by the mid-2030s. Like, what you do, the, the things that you're solving for have to operate at that scale. Because if they don't, we're going to break something. You know, our architecture won't work. And and I think that Elon constantly kind of pounding that into you in whatever way he did that, that like what you're doing for me today is actually hurting me in 10 or 15 years if you do it wrong. That is a really different thought than when you go quarter by quarter in a you know, publicly traded company or something like that. And it's, it's really kind of an infectious thought when it's like what you do today matters in 10 to 15 years. If we do it wrong, we won't be as big as we need to be. And that's the type of message I'm trying with, with our team internally to make them think at that scale. It's interesting to, it's an interesting perspective, right? Because like you said, the question, the quality of the question is such a director for the answer. Um, I think my next question is, you know, no matter how much money you raise, there's always more things to do than there's money for. And there's never enough hours in the day. And again, where you're looking at, you know, projects all over the world and not just inventing the vehicle. You've got to invent the airport, the traffic controller, all these things that we talked about in episode one. What does that prioritization look like for you when it seems like, you know, when it could feel like everything's screaming to go first? How do you, what's your decision tree on prioritization? So this, this is actually one where I had to go against my natural tendency. So my natural tendency actually kind of came from the experience we had at SpaceX, which was vertical integration, right? Bring everything in house, do it faster, do it quicker. And that works, that works pretty well when you're building, you know, call it order dozen, 20, 30 rockets a year type of thing. It's obviously worked well for Tesla to own some of those, those other areas. For us, we're in a different kind of industry. We have to build physical infrastructure. And our cost is approximately two thirds of our cost is really like the building of the tubes. And when you look at the way infrastructure projects are financed, most of that is locally financed. The last thing that they want to do is see those monies leave the country, even like the state or the region or whatever it might be, and go somewhere else because these are for for local benefit, local jobs. And so one of the things that we had to do was create a business model where we were trying to keep as much of the money locally that way projects get approved they get through people are excited about them people utilize them but also make enough money to to raise money to do development and create a sustainable business and that evolution and that that change you know that was actually more difficult than the technology architecture of itself like how do we make this work because at one hand we have to create the ecosystem create the industry but then you almost have to give it away because it becomes 
not enough margin for you to sustain all of this investment. And you have to find the higher margin aspects of your business, like the software over the air updates, the fleet management, the continual design improvements of each of the little modules that sit inside of things. And that took a lot of time. The way, same way that we iterate with technology development, we iterated five, six, seven times on the business model to find something that was like tractionable because typically these type of ideas have either been financed by one of two sources, either government entities, you know, through like Japan subsidizing or China subsidizing, right? or what I'd call the benevolent benefactor, right? Like the Jeff Bezos or the Mark Zuckerbergs or the Bill Gates of the world. And we didn't have really either. And so we had to kind of go this other route of like creating a real business and making sure that, that people would want to invest in it and the like. And that, um, the fun of that, the challenge of that, the heartache in that, the the thought of like, boy, we can have the greatest technology in the world, but if we can't get this business model right, we're never going to get it deployed. That caused a lot of sleepless nights is that how horrible would that be if you had like this amazing idea, but you couldn't form a business that people would be interested in investing in around it. And that was a real eye-opening piece for me is that, you know, I... I've ended up with probably three PhDs in electrical engineering over the last couple of years, the equivalent. And I probably ended up with like 10 different MBAs in every form of economics I ever read about or, or project finance that I never thought about. So That's fascinating. By the way, if you're looking for inspiration, my favorite infrastructure investor of all time, do you know Bruce Flatt from Brookfield? I don't. His talk at Google is so okay. excellent of thinking through the mind of an infrastructure investor. They're kind of like... They're kind of like Blackstone. They're about the same size, but less okay. flashy and kind of take more of like the Warren Buffett approach to everything. Okay. And, and P.S. They have like 600 billion. So maybe they'll finance some of your stuff. <laughs> Should get a meeting Perfect. With they're very Perfect. polite Canadians. They're great. Okay. Um, listen, I know we're about out of time. You get asked a lot of questions. You get interviewed. The press loves you guys. What's something that people don't ask enough? What's something you wish people would ask more often? Ooh, that is a good one. I think they, what, what does, what does Hyperloop look like in 20 years? Everybody kind of talks about where's the first project? When's the first project? Is technology ready enough? But no one, very rarely do I get asked about what does a world powered on Hyperloop look like in 20 years? And it's been put into a new perspective with me. I've got a little three-year-old at home now. And when we were starting the company, there was this really profound statement that my friend's eight-year-old had. He, we were in this room talking about Hyperloop with this one guy and he came in and he asked his dad, why do they call it roll down your windows? And I just paused for a second and it's like, he's never rolled down a window in his whole life. And this thought about what would a world look like with or without Hyperloop is we kind of know what it looks like without Hyperloop. We live in it today. And yeah, there'll be autonomous vehicles, there'll be electric vertical takeoff and landing, there'll be all of those things around. But what still will be missing is this high, kind of high speed backbone that's sustainable and the like. And there's not, there's not another answer to it right now. And so the world that I look at is one where you have, I'll say a centralized backbone that looks like an interstate highway system today, but it's just moving hyperloops through all four corners of the country or all four corners of the, the region, same day kind of shipping across the world. You're doing that at a high speed. You're doing that at a fraction of the cost. And then the one thing that 
coming back and tying it full circle is like, why is this still relevant in 40 or 50 years? If I'm gonna build all this infrastructure, right? Why is it still relevant? And it's relevant if I come back to this idea of the smart pod and dumb tube is that I have no idea. I'm, an, I'm a technologist, but I have no idea what the advances are gonna be in 40 or 50 years. I have speculation, but there's gonna be people with incredible breakthroughs. And I don't want to be cannibalized. I don't want to lose. I wanna take all of that and I wanna put and build new pods and upgrade them and make them go faster and make them more energy efficient and make them move more people. And I don't wanna to have to rebuild the tube at all. I wanna build that today and let generations to come enjoy that. And so this high-speed connection, this connection of, of people, of, of sustainable, of, of, of letting people live the way they want to live and kind of work where they want to work, uh, it's a really profound shift. And the only thing that I can think of in you know, my relatively short lifetime is like, you know, I was right around the time when the internet was like proliferating, right? So when cell phones came out and the like, and I still remember a little bit of before that, a little bit of after, and obviously the, the part after that, but the f just revolutionary shift in which that made our lives, like being able to move at these speeds, being able to connect people like this. I, I have this vision of 20 years from now, there being a sculpture in the courtyard of our headquarters. And to the layman, it's gonna look like a crumpled up piece of paper. But what it will be, it will look like the globe. But if the globe was, pointed it was shortened because of the time saving from all these different points that hyperloop is connected it actually makes the world look like it's crumpled right and it's kind of a fascinating thought process is like yeah never getting between these two places never would have been possible and, and so that the part that gets me excited is the technology you know overhead high efficient levitation we could change the way that buildings are made. We could change the way ships are offloaded. We could change the way that, you know, goods or warehouses are moving around because you have everything from the top as opposed to the bottom. But that's only going to be successful if we can get this first thing off the ground. And that's where you see like, you know, Hyperloop is a place I hope to spend my whole career, but I hope to not only build Hyperloops. And that's the foundational piece of the technology of something that I think is going to be quite quite amazing. And that's the stuff I really want people to ask about, but they got to believe we can do this stuff first. <laughs> <laughs> How exciting. You know, it really is fascinating, this this concept that you keep talking about, dumb road, smart car, you know? Yeah. It's so, it's so simple, yet, for exactly the reason you just brought up. Like, what, a, what an incredible insight for your entire company for potentially decades and decades and decades to come, you know? Yeah. I, it's a it's it's an infectious thought once it gets in there because it is so simple and at the end of the day you're kind of like is that really even a thought at all but then you're but that's actually the hallmark of a good one is that something that's a good idea actually is intuitively obvious to the casual observer like oh yeah of course i'll do that but it, it was anything but when we were creating it you know yeah no kidding well listen this has been great totally appreciate you making time Every time you have a big announcement, you should come back on and tell us about it. Where are the best places for people to be connecting with you guys and, and staying up to date on all your new accomplishments? So we have our website. We've got, I'm actually getting a little bit more active on, on Twitter. We, uh, we push some of the stuff out myself. Also, the company push, push some stuff out. LinkedIn is actually a big place. As I said, we're kind of always looking for, for new solid talent. In terms of near-term near things, 
if you find yourself in DC in November and beyond, we'll do a, a futures. There's a futures exhibit at the Smithsonian right on the mall next to the Smithsonian. Actually, the pod that my colleague Sarah and I wrote in in November is going to be there as well as a couple other things. So that's going to be exciting. If you find yourself worldwide, we're part of the Dubai Expo. It starts in October and a number of other areas there. But then, you know, there will always be announcements. More testing is always ongoing. And hopefully we'll be talking about some projects over the coming uh, year, coming months, about the next couple of years about projects. And that's going to be the next big thing for us. No, it's great. Well, listen, if, if somebody listening is inspired and they're like, I want to be a part of that, where can they find about open jobs or what's where do you want applicants going? Is it just on the website or? Virginhyperloop.com is the best place to, to find it on there. And then if you go to our, our LinkedIn page, which is Virgin Hyperloop on, on LinkedIn, those are the best super places to find it. That's great. Well, thanks again for making time for this. It's been great. All right. Thanks, Jess, for having me. Bye, everyone.